Glad you could make it. As we're, uh, what are we, a little over halfway through the semester? Is that right? Midterms are over. You're hanging in, sticking around, doing well. Glad you're here. Glad I'm here. Uh, despite everything that's gone on in the week or despite what's going on in your life, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, I really can't think of a place I'd rather be on a Friday night despite how I feel or how you feel. It's good to be with friends. It's good to be with you all to worship the Lord corporately. I hope that you're worshiping the Lord individually every day as you go in prayer and in reading things that we've talked about in the past, but it's good. It's important to be here uh, corporately as well. It's it's important to be here with brothers and sisters to praise the Lord together through song, through teaching. And so I'm glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here. Andy and I are. And uh, as we reflect back, we've covered three topics in nine weeks. And uh, if we're going for speed, we're not doing real well. But hopefully we're getting something out of this. You'll recall we covered the topic of God's Word, God's breath, and how it applies to our life and prayer. And then we just got done with God the Father. Who is God the Father and how does that affect our life? How do we think about who He is and what He is and what He's doing currently and how does that affect the way we live? And finally now we step in a new phase. But before we do that, I thought it'd be good to take an objective look to just step back and think about why are we here on Friday nights? What are we doing? And as I visit with people and as I spend time briefly on campus or interacting with you tonight, I get this sense of uh, of almost just a glazed over look <laughs> and just a, a general tiredness and a distractedness. And, uh, and sometimes I feel that in my own life. And I get that. I get that we get in a routine where we're just trying to run hard and do things. Uh, but God forbid that that should drive us or distract us from Him, rather that that should push us to Him. And so I'm going to pray for us right now that that would be the case. Pray for my own heart as well. Father, it's not my desire to make uh, things or circumstances or uh, things in life bigger than they are, but You know and I know that that whatever is going on in life uh, does affect the way we think and live and even worship. And Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth tonight. We want to worship you in fullness. We want to worship you as sons and daughters. And so give us grace tonight, Lord. Give me grace tonight as we worship you through the hearing of your word to worship you well to not just be, to not just exist in this body tonight, but to love you and to worship you and to long for you. Lord, give us that hunger and thirst that the psalmist cries out again and again for. Lord, restore our strength that we might mount up on wings like eagles. May your body not be distracted. May your body not be uh, simply here, Lord, but may we be here to worship to love you well. May that be the end tonight that your son is glorified through what's taught that we leave here tonight knowing, loving, and uh, and worshiping you better. Lord, that's our prayer, and we ask it together only because Christ died for us. Amen. So that objective look looks like us stepping back and saying, why are we here? What are we doing? 
Well, we're here to be, uh, Andy and I exist. We here, we come here on Friday night to teach. And as Ephesians 4.12 says, to equip the saints for the purpose of ministry in the body, to equip you. So you don't just come here to come in and, and take, to feed. That's part of it. We hope that you come here hungry, not physically, but spiritually, that your soul hungers for the word of God, but not just spiritually. We hope that are not just hungering, but hungering to dish out, to feed. You are to be equipped tonight to do ministry in the world and in the body. See, that's the goal. Is not that you just come and take and take and take. Some of you experience what I'm talking about when you go out and you, uh, you serve people and you become engaged in people's life and you witness and you do things. And you come alive because you're not just taking, taking, taking. Many of you come here on Friday night just to take in. But I hope that you come and you leave here and you, you, that you're equipped. That's our goal, to, to teach you about the Word of God, the character of God, prayer, the character of the Son. Next semester we'll talk on topics of relationships and the church and the Holy Spirit and all these things. It's to equip you. It's to help you. It's to serve you so you can serve others, so you can serve in the body and be salty in the world, so that you can, can be salt and light, so that you can be disciples. Okay, that's the goal here, not just to come and be smarter sinners. Okay, it's to grow, to learn so you can put out, so you can find ways to be in the body and interact and serve. Hope that makes sense. I hope that gives you kind of an objective look. And so as we talk about God the Son tonight, as we step into the character of God the Son, and specifically, as you'll see behind me, Christ our Lord, preexistent and preeminent, Christ of all eternities past, that you leave here tonight equipped and encouraged and challenged to do the work of the ministry. Not just gorging yourself on the Word, but feeding and serving other people. Does that make sense to you? You tracking with me? Good. So what do you think of when you think of Christ? What do you think? What's the first picture? What's the first idea that comes to mind as you think of Christ? Is it the 16th century paintings of Christ with soft flowing hair? Or is it the picture of him knocking on the door? Or what is it? What we don't see is those kinds of pictures or images in the Bible. What do we see? We see the lion and the lamb, the Christ of all eternities past and the Christ of all eternities future. The preexistent one, the preeminent one, God's son. The great King, the great I Am, the great Messiah, all these things and more. When you think of Christ, what do you think? What do you see? What you know and what you think about Jesus may be the very most important thing about you. You ever think about that? How you think, what you know about Christ, what you think about Christ could be the very most important thing, the single most important thing about you. Who is Christ? Who does he say that he is? The Bible has rightly been called the Jesus book. The Jesus book. <laughs> okay? From front to back, we see Christ in here. We see that the Old Testament is preparatory for Christ. We see uh, in the Gospels, we see the Christ in flesh. We see the presentation of Christ. In Acts, we see the proclamation of Christ. In the epistles, we see Christ personified or Christ lived out, Christ in us. And finally, in Revelation, we see uh, the preeminence of Christ or even the predomination of Christ, Christ on the throne. From front to back, this is the Jesus book. This is the Bible. This is God. This is the Son. This is the Holy Spirit. Christ is in and through so much of it. And I wish it took about about two years ago I really started to realize that. As I looked and as I read and as I found Christ in it, 
As I was studying this week, I came across a passage and uh, it really stuck with me. It's in Revelation 22 in verse 16. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about you these things for the churches. Listen to what he says here. I am the root and the descendant of David and the bright and morning star. I am the root and the descendant, or I am, I am the, the root and the offspring. I am the beginning and the end of David. Now, who says that kind of thing? Isn't that kind of a peculiar thing? I don't know if you knew this, but I'm related to one of the very first pilgrims that touched, uh, actually, they say the very first pilgrim that set his foot on Pilgrim Rock on this continent. That's a true story. His name was John Alden. And he had a famed uh, rivalry with a guy called Miles Standish over a woman called uh, Priscilla. And uh, I think it's true. It's a little bit of, there's a little bit of legend in there somewhere too. But I know I'm descendant. As a matter of fact, we have his sword at our house. That's a true story, an old Puritan sword. John Alden is a ship repairman who came over on the Mayflower, one of the very first pilgrims. And him and Miles Standish, who was a captain of the army, fought over a gal, and John Alden won, and the story goes on, but but how silly, how crazy would it be for me to say, I'm a descendant of John Alden? I wouldn't really, that's accurate. John Alden is my great, times a few, grandfather, okay? But how crazy would it be for me to say that I was the root of John Alden? I was the offspring and the root. I would never say something like that. To say that would mean that I was long before John Alden. That's not true at all. But Christ can say that a hundred times over. I was the root and the descendant. I was the root and the offspring of David. I was before and I am after and I am through all time. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth from old, from ancient days. Some of you guys have heard that, and that's the, that's the prophecy of where the Messiah will be born, right? Christ was born in Bethlehem. But there's more in there than that. Of course, there's always a lot in a passage as you dig and sink your teeth into it. One commentator says, this is the strongest assertion of indefinite duration of which the Hebrew language is capable. His name's Facet. What is Facet saying there? He's saying, if the Hebrew language could be as strong as it could in eternity's past, here's what it would say, Micah 5.2. Here's what it says, Micah 5.2. From days of old, from ages past, he is. He was. He is to come. That's strong. Is there any doubt that Christ is eternal? Uh Uh-uh. Not not if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture. As far back as you go, there He is. Now back up a little bit more. Now keep going. There He is. Okay, we'll back up some more. Keep going. Go through all of eternity's past. There is Christ. It's a hard concept for us, isn't it? Finite creatures to understand the... uh, the magnitude of that eternity is big. Keep backing up. Christ is always there. Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God, three in one, one in three, from all of eternity's past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what's it say in the very beginning? Our image. 
We learn in Colossians that Christ, the Creator, was there in the beginning. Proverbs 8.22, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way from works of old. Ages ago I was set up at first before the beginning of the earth. For me, time starts in Genesis 1. Not for God. That's what I think of. When I think of time, I think of, and God spoke the world into creation. Oh, God always was. Remember we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, God didn't create men or women because he was bored. He created them for them, their, his glory and for our pleasure. I'm glad he created us. But time didn't start then because God's not dependent on creation. From all of eternity's past, Christ was and God was and the Spirit was. John 1.1, 1, 1, you're familiar with this. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And I love this, John 8.58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen and amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you know the kind of vibrations that this would have sent through the Hebrew culture in that day. What happened right after he said that? They picked up stones to stone him, didn't they? Why? Because they were good, in the loose sense of that term, good Jewish people. And they knew that the law said that if you committed blasphemy, you were to be stoned to death. And they knew that when Christ said that, he was putting himself on equal planes with God. Before Abraham was, before your great father was, Abraham was a big deal. And he still is. I was just over there this summer. You bring up the name Abraham. I was talking to a guy on campus at Catapalooza, and he said, Jesus never asserted to be God. I said, but he did. He did many places. And here's one of them, John 8, 58. What would happen if you stood on a corner in Jerusalem and cried out, before Abraham was, I am? I'll tell you what would happen. It wouldn't be good, especially if you're in a, uh, a particular religious section. That's big words that Jesus says. From all of eternity's past, I was, I am. It's almost as if he settles it in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty he was, he is, he is to come. He is the beginning, the end. God without end. If Christ is eternal, we know and can recognize through just logic that many of his other attributes uh, are self-evident. For example, his pre-existence. You see that God's eternality or Christ's eternality and his pre-existence are different. We talk pre-existence, we talk pre-flesh. So as we see Christ in the Old Testament, and uh, then before the incarnation. But eternity's past. If he's eternal, then he's also preexistent. He's also omniscient. He's also omnipotent. Those things begin to take care of themselves when we realize that God, Christ, is eternal. Someone has said Christ is the uncaused case. No one, nothing caused Christ. From all of eternity's past, I think it's John 1, eight. Says God the Son rests in the bosom of the Father, representing the, the intimacy that was and is with God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father. In Matthew twenty eight twenty, Christ promises that he will abide with the disciples forever. Remember when we tried describing eternity a few weeks ago <laughs> and we couldn't really do it? Andy did a good job with his illustration. But even last week when he drew the line down, it's just so hard to wrap our minds around. It's so hard to get down. All we can do is look at Scripture and say, here's what Christ says about himself. Now everything we know about Christ and about God is obviously contained in the canon of Scripture. 
what we know is within here, right? We don't need to go other places, but whatever God wants us to know, he's told us in this. that true? Amen? Okay. So I thought we'd do something a little bit more manageable tonight, and we'd look at the pre-existence of Christ. That is to say, as we see him before, we know him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That make sense? Okay. It's easy enough to see Christ in much of the New Testament, isn't it? And when I think of Christ, I've got to admit, immediately my mind goes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, some of Acts, and in the epistles, and then, of course, again in Revelation. We look and we see the red ink, and we see, yeah, that's Christ. But I've been challenged to think, I think probably especially in the last couple of years, maybe even before that, about Christ in his preexistent state. Over 400 prophecies in the Old Testament. Can you believe that? Over 400 prophecies of Christ. Most would assert, certainly there's a few passages that speak strongly of Christ. What are those in the Old Testament? What jumps out to your mind? Anybody? Say it loud, say it proud. What's that? Isaiah, good. Isaiah what? 53, good. What's another one? Psalm 22, good. Those are the two big ones, huh, that jump out at us. I was talking to Pastor Brian one time. He told that uh, there's a guy in, in Jerusalem, and he's trying to witness that rabbis over there won't let them read Isaiah 53 because it's so evident. It's, so, it's just so evident as you pick through that. That is the Messiah. When you, they, they don't read that. In fact, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was real controversial because they, did, they didn't think Isaiah 53 was going to be in there. The Jewish nation didn't because it's so evident as we look through that. Some places are so evident, so real, so pertinent, so obvious. Other places, not quite as obvious. One of my favorite is Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. I'll read that to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Amen. Praise God that Christ is our righteousness. Comtair says this, The Old Testament, in anticipation of the Incarnation, was so written as to prepare the way for the Incarnation. Hence, it is not wrong to bring Christ in the Old Testament because the Old Testament was written Christologically. If the Old Testament is not a Christian book, then it's a very odd book. It has many eschatological dimensions that anticipate some great action of God in the future. A kingdom of God, a new covenant, a Messiah, a resurrection from the dead. And uh, Ram is the guy who wrote that. He goes on and on to describe more. If the Old Testament's not a Christian book, it's a very odd book, isn't it? As we look in there and as we dig in there, we see much of Christ. Let's demonstrate this from Scripture. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and open them to 2 Timothy. This will be a familiar passage to you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And look with me at verse 14, or starting in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This was a pretty influential verse in my own life, in my own testimony. Part of the way I got saved is I just started to read the Word. 
again in college, and I'd grown up in the church. I'd grown around uh, around Christian things, for lack of a better word. But I began to read the word for myself. I remember even coming home uh, half drunk sometimes, and just thinking, "I've got to, there's something about I've got to keep reading. I've got to know." Paul says to Timothy, you've known the sacred writings from the time of childhood. Now, we know and see that Timothy's grandmother and his mother were influential people, and they taught him the scriptures, even similar in my life. That was true for me, but at the time of writing this, what's going on, what scriptures is he talking about, the sacred writings? He's not talking about 2 Timothy. (laughs) What's he talking about? He's looking back and saying, things of old, these sacred writings, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. You've known these things. What does he mean? You've known these things and you could be saved through Christ reading the Old Testament? That's what Timothy seems to be saying, doesn't he? Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Go toward Revelation a few books. Book of 1 Peter. We're going through this Sunday morning here. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10. Check this out. Pretty cool. Verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets... Who's the prophets? What's that mean? Old Testament. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking how to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What's Peter writing there? They searched the Scriptures. It was always so odd for me as a young man reading and trying to understand the Gospels that these people were really waiting for a Messiah. They wanted and they longed and they were waiting. And John came early preparing the way of the Lord. They were anxious. They awaited the king. It says, uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. These things, uh, goes on to say in the next verse, these things in which the angels long to look. You believe that? The word there means to, uh, like to peer over, to look into, even at an inconvenience to yourself. Angels long to look into, to study, to see what this salvation was. As they looked and saw what the Lord revealed to them. The prophets sometimes didn't even understand their own visions or their own writings. We see in Daniel, he writes, he sees this vision, says, I don't know what this is. He knows he ought to record it. These writings consisted and embraced not only the glories, but also the sufferings of Christ. This was hard for me to understand uh, Someone explained it to me this way. If you see two mountains, like if we were to look at the Bridgers right there, right? Yeah. Right about there, Nate? Yeah, look over there, and as you see the Bridgers, you can see all the mountains, but you can't tell quite. In fact, all of them look about the same distance away, right? Because they're quite a ways away. But as you get closer, especially as you get right on top of them, you can see they're not all the same height. They're not all the same together. And as the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about Christ, sometimes even we see the first uh, incarnation or the first coming in, in the same verse as the second coming. So we couldn't quite see the difference there. So we predict, someone predict his glories and someone predict their suffer, his sufferings right on top of each other. The closer we come, now we can see that there is a separation between his first and second coming, but they couldn't always tell that. Someone has said that in the old, the new is concealed, in the new, the old is revealed. Makes sense to you? 
what's going on. I love understanding the connection between the new and the old and understanding that they're not as separate as I once thought they were. The old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed. We can never as born-again Christians think the same about the Old Testament, can we? As we read it, we don't read the same. We don't read it the same as we do, uh, as we do the Jewish nation, or as we do uh, the same as Israel reads it. We can't look at that. We go. We look at that and we say, "Christ has come, and He's coming again." I want you to turn uh, with me to Luke chapter twenty-four. Luke chapter twenty-four. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And go over to chapter twenty-four. The resurrections happened in the beginning of the chapter, and then Christ is on the road to Emmaus. And you'll recall this. He's talking to a couple of young men. Look at me. Uh, look with me at verse 25. Verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into glory? And look at what this says. Then he began with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. It's really something. Don't you wish you could have been there to just sit and go, really, that one too? Oh, I see now. Yes, I see. Look at it. He says, in all the scriptures, he explained to them, starting with Moses. What's Moses? What did Moses write? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So starting at the beginning, Jesus said, here I am. And look at this. Here I am. See me here. He rebukes him. He says, uh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Christ doesn't seem to think it's quite as much of a mystery as we've all made it out to be, does he? He says, you search and you look. Like Peter said, you study. Christ began there and he, he began to show them all that they'd written about him. I find this simply amazing. I just wish I could have been there to learn and to understand the things that he was saying. He would have undoubtedly pointed them to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Some of you heard several years ago when Andy was going through uh, Hebrews with y'all. He was showing you again through Hebrews, and we look back at Leviticus. We even did this last year, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and that, how that pointed ultimately to the final lamb, to the perfect lamb without blemish. He would undoubtedly point him to the major prophetic passages about the crucifixion. You guys mentioned some of them. Psalm 22. And on and on. I don't know how long this would have taken, but it really would have been something, wouldn't it? To be instructed by the Master and to say, Here I am. Look here. I was before you knew. And here I am now. The point is clear. I was before you were. I've always been. And he would say, Here's the evidence. Here, look here with me. You know what else this shows that I think is fascinating? The New Testament uh, writers, they didn't come up with this idea of, of pulling the old into the new and, and expositing the, oh, here's a verse from Psalms, here's a verse from Daniel, here's a verse from Ezekiel, and putting it in the passages and explaining them that. Who taught that to him? Who taught that to him? Jesus did. Jesus said, here I am. Look, here, use this passage. When we were taking a, uh, it's called Survey of the Hebrew Bible class when I was down at MSU, and uh, the professor said, it was just the Hebrew Bible, they called it, or the Old Testament. And she said, we don't need to go over the New Testament. It's basically just everything in the Old all over again. And it was about pretty much, 
yeah, I think it was the only correct thing she said in the class. But it, but it was right. There's a sense in which the Old Testament is revealed in the New, and it is. It's, again, it's bringing forth, it's bringing to light these scriptures that were hard for us to understand. I love that. I love, I don't know if you have a Bible that, uh, whether it italicizes it or the NASB sets it apart kind of by itself so we can see, okay, here's the Old Here's the new, and remember what the apostles did? They would go into the, into the synagogues and into the temples or into the synagogues and they would reason with people from the scriptures. They'd say, hey, look at this. Remember this? Here. Here's what this really means. Pretty cool, huh? Simply amazing to me. That's how Christ taught them. They didn't come up with that on their own. The Spirit inspired them and Christ taught them. A little later on, the same day, look with me if you're still there, uh, Luke 24 again. A little, little later on, same day, Luke 24. Let me get there again with you. Go with me to verse uh, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What did he just do there? He took all of the Old Testament and said, here's the three major divisions, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the poetic books. Here it is. And he says, what? All that was written about me in it. Here's the Old Testament. Here's the writings. Here I am in it. Here I am in it. Christ encompassed all of Hebrew Scripture in that statement. The texts go on and on and on. We could multiply examples throughout the New Testament of, of the epistles or of the apostles and of Christ saying, here I am. Here's, here's me in the Old Testament. Look deeper. Try harder. Look, look at this passage too. Look with me at uh, John 5. Go back a few. Excuse me. Go forward a, a book to John 5. Go to verse 39 with me. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these things that what? Testify about me. Now look at verse 45 with me. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in, or if you believe Moses, that is if you believe the Old Testament, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe my writings, how will you believe my words? There he is, the Old Testament. Moses wrote about me. Here I was, there I was, here I am, here I will always be. Hope this expands your thoughts, expands your view of Christ. He says this again and again. It's part of how he puts himself on an equal plane with God. He says, I was there then, here I am now, and here I will always be. I was there in the beginning. Before Abraham was, I am. Moses? Who wrote of you? Moses? Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine being there? It just would have blown their mind. You search the scriptures because you think in them you're going to have life. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's those things that they write about me, and in me you have eternal life, he says. I wrote a book several years ago by a guy named Artaxerdia. Some of you guys know this guy just came here not too long ago to speak, and I want to read uh, part of his book to you. The inscriptured 
word centers its attention on Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. He is the ark to rescue the people of God. He is the holy angel of Yahweh. He is the seed of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. He is the Passover lamb. He is the poet greater than Moses. He is the pillar of fire in the wilderness. He is the rock struck by Moses. He is the heir to the Davidic throne. He is the thrice holy Lord of Isaiah 6. He is the great, greater shepherd of Ezekiel 34. He is Mary's baby, Herod's enemy, and Simon's joy. He's the 12-year-old boy in the temple and the believed son to be baptized. He's the healer of the blind, the provider for the hungry, the friend of the outcast. He's the new temple, the source of living water, the man that gives life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the Father's true vine. He's the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the resurrected lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the ascended Lord, the ruler of the church and the returning judge of all men. The sacred scriptures are the instruments by which the spirit of the living God glorifies Jesus Christ. The sacred scriptures are the instrument by which the spirit of the living God glorifies Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, Lord, help us to walk away here tonight with a greater view of Christ. May we worship him more. May we love him more. May we see him more accurately, more fully, not some beautified portrait, but the Christ of all eternities past. I'd like to spend just a little bit of time as we, uh, as we wrap up in Colossians 1. Turn with me to Colossians 1. Perhaps one of the most familiar passages that talk about uh, Christ. Let's talk background a little bit. Colossians 1. And uh, we'll start in verse 16, but don't go there quite yet. Uh, some of the false teachers at Colossae were attacking especially the doctrine of Christ, and they were, they were going at Christ and saying he was nothing more than a high-created angel, or he was, uh, you don't need Christ, you need these other beings, you need other angels as well. Uh, there was a, a real depreciation or a downing of the person and the lordship of Jesus Christ. They were, taught, they were teaching he was one of many spirit beings, and uh, he helped bridge the space between God and humankind. There were many angels and special ones, very special angels, and Christ was another special angel. If this sounds familiar, it's it what kind of turned into what we know as Gnosticism. And what we still see today is Gnosticism, really, in a lot of the cults. Christ was just another, they would say. It was a phys- uh, philosophical dualism in ways that made uh, Christ just out to be... Uh, Another angel. It's, it said that matter was evil, but spirit was good. So on this hand, matter or created was bad, but spirit was good, which obviously made the incarnation impossible because Christ couldn't have been in the flesh because they believed the flesh was evil. Earlier in the letters of the people at Rome and at Galatia, Christ, or excuse me, Paul had addressed and said, uh, here's Christ's role specifically in salvation, or, or here's salvific theology, and here's how it applies. But now we look at Christ on a more cosmic scale. That's what we want to do tonight. That's, what, that's my goal tonight is to look at Christ, pre-existence, eternality of Christ. And here's what Paul does. is He looks at him on a cosmic level and says, here is Christ. Hebrews 1.6 reminds me of this. And again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Christ was not a created being. Rather, it says that he created all angels, even the fallen ones he created. 
we see here a great reflection of, of Christ as God. So Colossians 1, 6. I got excited and closed my Bible. Hold on. Sorry. <laughs> Colossians 1, verse 16. And I'm going to read with you till, uh, let's read till 19. Starting in verse Let's go to 15. I want to back up one more. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, we don't have any sort of time to do this justice. None at all. What a tremendous passage. Surely we could spend all semester, all year, all of our lives examining this and glorying in Christ. I hope you do that. Hope you do that on your own time. But I wanted to touch a few things tonight that specifically deal with what we're talking about. The image of the invisible God. First Timothy 1.17 says that no one has seen God at any time. But Christ is the exact representation of God. He's the firstborn in both rank and time. He is supreme over all. That's what this word means. Primarily it means not he's the firstborn in, in terms of time, but supremacy. He is God. He is the Lord over all. He has all dominion, all divinity. You remember in Revelation 5, don't you? I won't turn there because I feel like I go to this in every message I do. But in Revelation 5, we see John and he's, he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Because we see the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. And he's weeping because he doesn't see anyone worthy to open it. He's weeping. He says, who is worthy to open this title deed, this seal? It's sealed the, the deed of the earth. Who is supreme? Who is good enough to do this? And he's weeping. And says, one of the elders turned and he says, look. Says, Behold, the lamb was standing there as if slain. And the, and the word there means slaughtered or, or just a, a gruesome picture. And who is it? It's Christ in that apocalyptic uh, Literature. He's, he's standing as if a lamb who is slain. He says, he is worthy. He opens the seal. Who can do it? Christ can. The one who is supreme. The one who has preeminence. Who is Lord over all from all of eternity's past. He was and is. We're especially looking back in time tonight. He was always. He was first born. Both in time and supremacy. This could be our cry, couldn't it? Lord, you are worthy. You are so worthy. You've always been worthy. You would be worthy if you were never incarnate. You would have been worthy if there was never Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, praise God there is. But do you realize he didn't have, God didn't, it says uh, he authored our salvation or he wrote it down. He didn't have to. We could come here tonight and we could say, God is good, God is holy, God is love. Amen. And we are all damned because of our sin. And we would cry out, You are worthy, Christ. And next week we'll talk about post flesh. But pr-
praise him. Praise God he did come in flesh and he is worthy. You are worthy. Think about how perverted our view of Christ is in the world. Right? We hear all kinds of things about Christ. Reflecting on one today that I'd heard a long time ago, actress Jenna Malone said this, a lot of powerful religious leaders from Jesus to Buddha to Tibetan monks, they're all really talking about the same things. Love and acceptance and the value of friendship and respecting yourself so that you can respect others. It could not be farther from the truth, friends. That's so far off. And I hope you see that tonight. If you're confused, see this. He is worthy. He is worthy of worship. He is supreme. He is pre-existent. He is eternal. He is God. He is king. Verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Genesis 1, who was there? Who created? Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By him. Three prepositional phrases here. By him, through him, for him. By him in the sense that all occurred within the sphere of of Christ's perfect power and authority. Through him in the sense that he was the agent in which all things were created and which all things came into being. And for him in the sense that in the end all things that exist are for his glory, for his worship, and they serve to glorify him. He is worthy before he even took on flesh. Before he took on flesh, he was worthy. Verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Before all things means primarily in time. Before you know, before time was began, before time was established, in our sense of the thinking, he was. I can't say that enough. I want you to get that. Before time, he was. Revelation 23 or excuse me, twenty two thirteen. I mentioned this early. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. Hebrews 1, 3, I love this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word imprint there, it's, like, it's talking about like a stamp. We were to stamp in those days... Uh, the seal and the clay. He's the imprint. He is the exact representation of God. For once, God could say, you want to see me? Look. Look at Christ. He's the imprint. Verse 18, we'll just touch on this briefly. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, sorry, firstborn from the dead, that in him everything, or that in everything he might be preeminent. Church is an organism, isn't it? We hear this again and again. The church is the body. It's a living, functioning, breathing thing. And who's in charge? Yeah, Christ is. Christ is. Christ is the head. We are the body. The pituitary gland that uh, releases hormones so we can grow and function in the head. Even growth happens from the head. He is the head. We are the body. Let's move on. We'll talk about that more next semester. Come on back. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Can you believe that? 
even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us before him, the foundations of the world, before the world even came into being. That is humbling. And if it's not, it should be. If it's not, you don't understand it. What a thing to be standing, to be sitting tonight thinking, why me? I don't know. But praise God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Friends, you can think too much of prayer. You can think too much of even the Bible. You can, you can focus so much on those that you take your eyes off the target and why we do those things. You can be a very, you can be high intellect. I think of that class on campus I took. That gal at least pretended like she knew a lot of, uh, about the Bible or about Hebrew scriptures. You can focus so much on those and be totally outside of Christ. You cannot make market You cannot make the same mistake with Christ. You cannot focus too much on God. You cannot say, oh, today I spent too much time thinking about Jesus. Hate it when that happens, don't you? No, I love it. I love it. I remember recalling a story of a missionary whose goal was to spend one day, just one day, thinking about nothing but Christ. We cannot overthink Christ. We cannot think too much and worship him too much. John Gill says this, he ought to have the first place in the affections of our hearts, in the contemplations of our minds, in the desires of our soul, and the higher praises, highest praises of our lips. He ought to have preeminence. He ought to have first place in everything. In everything. Christ is not only eternal, he's not only preexistent, but he is preeminent. He is preeminent, preeminent in part because he is eternal, because he is preexistent. What do you think? What do you think? He's preeminent. Is he preeminent in your life? He's Lord. Is he Lord in your life? Do you know him? Are you worshiping him? Are you calling on his name? Are you praising him tonight? What do you think? What you think and know about Christ, I'll say it again, what you think and know about Christ may be the most important thing about you. For it will determine your eternity. Believe on Christ, sinner. Believe on Christ, Christian. Keep believing. Praise God, he keeps us. I want to end with this, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I said we were just going to talk about Christ's eternal preexistence tonight, but we can't miss what happened when he came in the flesh. He bled, he died, he was crucified. God poured out on his wrath on Christ. He reconciled a ruined and condemned world to God through himself, making peace by his blood. Let's rejoice in him as we sing tonight. Let's rejoice in him as we pray tonight. He is our God and our King, the preexistent one, the preeminent one, the one from all eternity's past, the Alpha and the Omega. Father, thank you so much for sending your Son. We remember and rejoice that he would have been worthy of all praise and power and admiration and worship had he never even come, had he never even reconciled us to himself. Thank you, Father, that he did. I praise you that he did. I praise you that you sent him. 
praise you that he offered himself up under his own accord. We rejoice as we think it about before Abraham was, he is. We rejoice as we think about he's the offspring and the root of David. Oh, how we love your son. Oh, how we love you. Make us to love you more by what we've learned tonight. Help us to worship you better, Lord. Help us to be humble because of what we know. We ask it all in the precious name of Christ.